The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. A copy from uh, the Pew Rack, if you need one, there's one nearby you, a blue Bible. You can find John 20, it's on page 906, or whatever Bible you have. Uh, turn with me in the New Testament to John's Gospel, chapter 20. Uh, and as you're doing that, I am uh, reading a book right now called Strange Rites, the, the New Religion of a Secular Age, in which it was put forth that my generation and the generation immediately behind me is more likely to identify the four houses of Hogwarts than they are the four Gospels in the New Testament. More likely to identify the Harry Potter series and the four houses of Hogwarts than they are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Rather than being upset about that, I'm choosing to be excited about that because though you may say, boy, this is something I know. This is a story I'm aware of. We take for granted, actually, that lots of people, many people, perhaps maybe even some here, do not know the story of Jesus. And so, Christian believer, if you're someone who has heard it again and again and again, you need to hear it yet again so that you might know it more deeply to be ready to share it with others. Now, before we read from John 20, I want you to have a sense of what kind of story this is. The Christian message, the Christian gospel, centers around the fact of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from an empty tomb. The resurrection is not a metaphor. The resurrection is not a symbol. The resurrection is not a myth. The resurrection of Jesus is a fact of History. Let's say it without shame. A fact of history. Jesus died and rose, and therefore He lives. He lives now at the Father's right hand in the same body, though glorified in heaven, with which He lived on this earth for 30-some years. And as truly as you sit in your seat right now, Jesus sits at the Father's right hand in heaven. This is what we believe. This is both the profession and the claim of the Christian faith, but more than that, this is also the offer of the Christian faith. That again, as surely as you sit in your seat now, so surely are you able to both meet and know this resurrected Savior. You can meet and know Him as surely as Mary did in what we will read here in just a moment, that first Easter Sunday. But we can only do it by faith. And we need the Spirit of God to give us that faith to believe it. And so, dear friends, as we approach the Scriptures, let us pray and ask God's blessing upon the Word that we might hear Him speaking to us this morning. Let us pray. O oh Lord, we ask now for grace and help to hear the voice of our Savior, Jesus, who calls us by name. Lord, grant that we, like Mary, may hear our names on the lips of Jesus calling us to turn from an empty tomb to the living Savior in the preaching of the gospel. So, Lord, send your Spirit upon us now to give understanding, to give faith and rejoicing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And now, hear the Word of God from John 20 and the first 18 verses. This is the Word of God. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, 
They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus, Jesus' head not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. So may he write eternal truth on our hearts. And I, I invite you that if you've got your Bible, keep it open. We're staying here in John chapter 20. And I want you to see with me what Jesus has to say to Mary. Before we do that, you may be familiar with the author J.R.R. Tolkien, famous author of the Lord of the Rings trilogy and The Hobbit. He coined a phrase that he thought was essential for good storytelling, a crucial element of a good story, and it was the term a eucatastrophe. I don't know if you've ever heard that word. The resurrection, Tolkien said, is the archetypical eucatastrophe, meaning we know what a catastrophe is, right? A catastrophe is a disaster that suddenly overtakes us that could not be prevented. But a eucatastrophe is a good catastrophe, a wonderful catastrophe. A disaster is about to descend suddenly, but there is a glorious reversal, and good rather than evil is what comes about. A eucatastrophe, Tolkien said, gives us the opportunity to catch our breath, to lift our hearts, and give us a glimpse of glory and joy. That's what a eucatastrophe does, and that's why Tolkien said the resurrection is the great eucatastrophe. Well, the disciples experienced that on that first Easter morning, filled with awe and fear and wonder, a mixture of understanding, a mixture of belief and unbelief, faith and uncertainty, and John's Gospel takes us along the way, but uniquely from the perspective of the woman Mary, Mary Magdalene. 
In the previous chapter, we would learn that Mary had stood and watched all the events of Friday take place as far as bringing Jesus' dead body down off of the cross, going with Joseph of Arimathea to his borrowed garden tomb and there to lay Jesus' lifeless body behind a stone-sealed tomb. And Mary saw it all. And she's now headed to the same garden to perform Jewish burial rites to honor Jesus. But they are not to encounter a dead Christ, but a living one. We want to encounter that same living Christ with Mary. And as she does this, Jesus is going to speak three particular words to her. We find a word of correction in verse 15, a word of calling in verse 16, and a word of commission in verses 17 and 18. And we're going we're gonna to focus on those words that Jesus issues. But before we get to those, we want to see, first of all, the confusion so we'll see then together those four things. Confusion and correction and calling and commission along the way as we follow this great new catastrophe. So first of all, confusion. There's great confusion here in this text. The chapter opens the first day of the week very early on Sunday morning. It's still dark. John says that Mary's come to Jesus' tomb. And in verse 2, we're told that she finds the stone rolled away and then turns and runs to tell the other disciples. She says in verse 2, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Mary is here as a spokeswoman on behalf of a group of women who were with her, telling us and telling the disciples, we don't know where they have laid him, namely Jesus. Meanwhile, John and Peter race ahead to the tomb. They want to see for themselves. Mary follows along behind to take a second look. When they get there, the Simon and John, they look in and see the grave clothes folded and the face lying in place where it is. And in verse 8, we find this statement. It's peculiar. Verse 8 says, They saw and believed. What did they believe? Not the resurrection. They believed what Mary told them about what happened. Mary said, he's gone. And they wanted to look for themselves, saw the body's not there, and believed Mary's account. We do not know where they've laid in. And so they leave, those disciples, no doubt dismayed, heartbroken all over again. Not only is their Lord dead, his body is missing, and Mary is left behind. We find her in verse 11, outside the tomb, weeping. And again and again and again in this text, John is going to emphasize Mary's distraught condition. We find her weeping and weeping and grieving, brokenhearted and devastated. Her tears show, don't they, how much she loves Jesus as she is overcome with grief. In fact, her grief is so profound, we see in verse 12, that these two angels appear to her in the garden tomb, but Mary seems not even to register this because she's so overcome with the grief. Look again in verse 12. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. But Mary is so consumed with grief and likely so confused that she doesn't even have a normal reaction to these angels, almost as if talking to angels is a normal thing for her. She doesn't respond to the fact that these angels are here at all. Isn't that interesting? The angels ask her, Why are you weeping? As if they're astonished. Why would you be weeping? 
Jesus is not here. He's alive, don't you see? But through her tears, she responds almost absent-mindedly. No, they've taken him. They've taken away, notice how she says, they have taken away my Lord in verse 13. When she told the disciples, she spoke generally, they have taken away the Lord. But now she's by herself with her emotions in the presence of these two angels. And it's so much more personal, isn't it? They've taken away my Lord. He's mine and he's not here and he's gone and I don't know what to do about it. They've taken him away. And it's at this moment of vulnerability and intimacy that Mary encounters Jesus. But she doesn't recognize him, right? Verse 14, she turns around and there's Jesus standing there alive again from the grave, but she doesn't know it. It could be perhaps, as some have suggested, that Mary is so, again, overcome with emotion and filled with grief that she is blinded by her own tears to be able to perceive correctly that Jesus is right there in front of her. But this is not psychological. It's not emotional. It's profoundly spiritual. Her ability to see Jesus is not an issue of her eyesight, but rather an issue of her heart, an issue of her faith. And even so, when Jesus, the living Christ, speaks to her, he repeats the angelic question, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? Doesn't recognize him, concluding he must be the gardener. And at that moment, John is recording these details for you and I, who know the bigger story as if to provide a moment of almost comic relief, right? For Mary, this moment of agony and grief, but we know how this ends. And yet we enter into Mary's experience. John, as he writes this gospel, he wants us to feel something of the weight of Mary's tears that are about to be replaced with celebration. All of the load of grief and sorrow is about to become unending joy. But this momentary preposterous note that here is Jesus alive from the grave and Mary thinks that this is some guy to look after the roses. Now clearly she loves him and we can enter into her emotional experience and be moved. But dear friends, I want you to notice that Mary's emotion is not enough here. Her love for Jesus and she is full of love for Jesus but it is not enough. She loves him, but she doesn't understand. She does not remember his words. Because very often Jesus would say to the disciples, the Son of Man must suffer and be crucified, be buried, and on the third day rise from the dead. He said it again and again and again. And just like the first two disciples that came, John, Peter, Mary doesn't understand either. She loves him, to be sure, but she doesn't trust him yet. She doesn't fully believe his promises all the way yet. The tomb is empty, and this should be cause for great rejoicing, but there she is weeping because she does not believe. What does that say to us this morning? I think it says something very important. A lesson that you and I should not miss before we move on in the text, that Mary loves Jesus, and for as deeply as she cares for him, she doesn't yet trust him. Dear friends, love for Christ Affection for Christian things is good in and of itself. But if love is not mixed with faith, it's insufficient. 
There is not yet faith in the promises. Love without faith leaves us still blind. Now, I would imagine that, that you're here because you have affinity for Christian things, right? Church and Easter and celebration and the Bible and the Lord Jesus, and that's all good and wonderful. But dear friends, don't merely have an affinity and an affection for Christian symbols and celebrations without real faith in Christ because it will just leave you blind. Don't just celebrate Easter. Believe in Jesus. I think that's what this tells us. You must personally come to rely on and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for yourself because only He can remove the spiritual blindness that is present that keeps us from seeing who He really is. Faith in Christ opens our eyes and we should see that. We should see that. But then secondly, Jesus is going to correct Mary as He speaks to her. Look how Jesus responds. Mary's confused, but then Jesus speaks these three words to her and the first one comes in verse 15 and it's a word of correction. It's gentle to be sure, it's kind, but it's still a correction. This gentle word in verse 15, woman, why are you weeping? Why these tears, Mary? This tomb is empty. This grave has been conquered. Why are you so sad? Why are you weeping now? This word of correction comes here to say, Easter is not a time for weeping. There are times of weeping, of course, but we need to hear this correction just like Mary needed to hear it. I don't know what kind of person you are temperamentally, right? We speak of people who are glass half full, glass half empty, glass overflowing type people, whatever the case might be. Maybe you are temperamentally melancholy by disposition. Maybe you're someone who sings barely just above a whisper in church. Dear friends, correct yourself. Easter is a time not to mourn. Easter is a time not to whisper, but to believe and feel deeply within our souls. Dear friends, I shouldn't have to remind you, we couldn't be here last year. You were at home. You weren't able to hear the echoes of the saints of God resounding off these windows in praise to our triune God. Don't whisper. Don't be quiet. Christ is risen, and He is risen indeed. Jesus is alive. The stone is rolled away. The, the tomb is empty. The throne is occupied because the tomb is empty. The Lord of life has shattered the bonds of death, broken the chains of our penalty, given us access to the Father, and everything in this world that causes us grief and sorrow and weeping and tears is conquered because of what we read here. Jesus is alive, and one day He will wipe away those tears. As Jesus speaks this tender word of correction to Mary, in the Gospel, Jesus also speaks a tender word of correction to you. One day, I will wipe away all your tears and all that brings you grief and sorrow and sadness. All that is evil and unrighteous in the world will be undone. One day, dear friends, weep no more. To use the words of one of Tolkien's famous characters, Samwise Gamgee, everything sad is becoming untrue because Jesus is alive. And then look with me in verse 16. 
In response to Mary's confusion and after his word of correction to Mary, there is also the second word he speaks to her, this word of calling. Again, verse 16, Mary thinks he's the gardener, and so she explains that she thinks that somebody's moved the body. Perhaps it was you, she says. Just tell me where you've you've put him. I'll go get him. I don't want you to bother with him. I'll care for his dead body. And then Jesus decides at some point to reveal himself to Mary. He calls her name, Mary. This in one of the most tender and beautiful moments perhaps in all the Bible. Appreciate the physicality of this moment. Pay attention to the directions here. The risen Christ is calling out Mary's name. And do you notice this detail in the text? She had turned her back. She had turned her back on the man whom she thought was the gardener to look back into the tomb. But when, having looked into the tomb, she hears her name behind her on the lips of the Lord Jesus, she turns back again. Appreciate the physicality of the action. She is looking into the empty tomb, hopeless and sorrowful, needing necessarily to turn and face Jesus Christ there to cry out, Rabboni, not just teacher, but my teacher, again with the intimacy. It's you, it's you. When Jesus called her name, her eyes were opened and she had been facing the wrong way, looking for the living among the dead in a dusty old tomb where Jesus was not. And as Mary turns, her grief is replaced with gladness and her sorrow is replaced with celebration. And that's what Jesus does, I want you to see. This is what Jesus does. As Jesus calls Mary by name, that's what He does for you. That's what He does for all Christian believers. It says in John 10, verse 3, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and I call my sheep by their names. The call of Jesus Christ in the Gospel. When it comes to us in the Gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit, then the blindness of our eyes goes away. Then the blindness of our unbelief is replaced with faith that is able to look at Jesus and see not a gardener, but a resurrected Savior and believe. This is what the Gospel does. So dear friends, the fact that you are here this morning means that Jesus is speaking this same word now to you in the Gospel, calling you by name to believe in and trust Himself. Some people look upon Jesus and they conclude with Mary some foolish thing that He's a gardener or He's just a good teacher or He's just a good moral example. It's not who He really is. Who He really is is the living Lord. And He is calling you now to see that and to believe that. If you are someone who is looking into an empty tomb, looking for a reason to have hope, looking for a reason to have peace, looking for a reason for a clean conscience, you won't find it among the dead. It's found only in Jesus Christ. You need to hear Christ calling you to Himself, looking to you, calling you by name so your eyes might be opened that you might also believe like Mary does. Mary's confusion, then she is corrected, and then she receives a call. We ask, are you listening? And then finally, there is a word of commission. It's in verses 17 and 18, the last here. A 
Apparently, once Mary understands who Jesus is, she does what I suspect most of us would do in that same situation. She wants to wrap her arms around Jesus as if to say, you left me and I don't want you to leave ever again. I was distraught. I want you to stay. She wants to take hold of him in wonder and in affection, but Jesus understands that that there's more here in Mary's action that needs to be redirected, and so he issues this commission. He must ascend to the right hand of the Father. She is clinging to him possessively as if to hold him down, and Jesus says, no, I must leave you, and I must ascend, because if I ascend, I will send the Holy Spirit to the church to spread the news over all the earth, of what is true, that I am risen, and you must let me go. Do not cling to me, verse 17, Jesus says, for I have yet to ascend to the Father. The issue is not that Jesus can't be touched. The issue is not that Jesus doesn't have a physical body. He does. Mary could touch him, but she shouldn't hold him back from the fullness of what he has come to do, namely not only to live, die, and rise, but ascend to be the interceding Savior as well. And this is Jesus' point. Look, Mary, you can't keep me. I must leave you, but I've got a job for you. I've got a commission to give to you. He gives her this commission. He sends her back to the disciples with good news. Not just that Christ has risen, but why? Why he has risen, what his cross and empty tomb means, this soon ascended mastery over all things will give to us. Look at what Jesus says in verses 17 and 18. And ask yourself the question, why didn't Jesus simply say, Mary, don't hold me. I'm going to my Father. But the specific language of verse 17 says, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. My God and your God. Do you notice the particular emphasis there on the fatherhood of God? to welcome people into his family. That is because the great benefit, perhaps the greatest benefit of all that comes through the resurrection, through the sufferings and exaltation of the Savior is that you might belong to the family of God. You know what's rampant today in the world is feelings of loneliness and isolation, uncertainty of where I really belong. The Gospel says in Jesus Christ, you have a family that you belong. He lives that you might have a place in the family. That's what Easter is about. And I understand that what you're going to do likely this afternoon is spend time with, with your family and with your friends. And that's a good thing. It's a meaningful and right thing. But I don't want you to miss what the gospel is saying to you that you can also be a part of the family of God. To have God as your father. To have a family in more profound ways than even of blood. There is this invitation for you to come home, to trust in the Lord Jesus, to turn to Him in faith, the kind of faith that opens eyes that we can see for Him, for who He really is, that looks upon Him and trusts Him to be our King and Savior. When you do that, you become a part of the family. And this is the invitation. Jesus has risen that we might come home. That we might come home in faith and trust to the God who loves us who has sent His Son into the world to redeem us, though we are unworthy and though we are headed on the pathway of destruction, Christ redeems because He is a Savior. And so may the Lord give us all grace to hear the voice of the Savior speaking our name in the Gospel, speaking your name 
in the gospel to help us to turn from the empty tomb and the false hopes of this world to put our trust in Christ and therefore to become a child of God. Dear friends, that's what Easter is about. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we rejoice with you as the angels do in heaven at the resurrection of Christ. Lord, give us all the faith both to apprehend, not only to assent intellectually, but perceive and feel deeply within our hearts of a living faith in Christ our Lord. We ask for that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.